Father, we thank you that you are always with us, and wherever we go on this planet, uh, we have access to you through your Son, Jesus Christ. We're thankful that when he ascended, he sent his Holy Spirit, and in so doing, he empowered his people, us, to be able to, first of all, live in ways that are honoring to you, but also to be able to cry out to you wherever we are. We're so thankful, Father, that you are indeed everywhere accessible to us through Christ, and that means that we're never alone. And that means that you're ever watching over us and caring for us. How thankful we are for that truth. Father, we want to learn more about the things that you do for us. We want to learn more about who you are and who your son Jesus is and how it is that he's brought us to uh, to himself. Help us to do that in this time of study and learning. And we pray this, Father, in his name. Amen. All right, coffee and questions. Now, last week, we got off onto a question that took up pretty much the whole time and more. And I actually had, um, I've had several questions sent in to me. So I had a question that was sent that I never got around to it last week. And I do want to get to it today because it actually was a riff on, um, uh, an, on Imad's sermon the previous week. So last week that would have been fairly fresh a whole week ago. Now it's two weeks ago. So I don't want to sit on it too long. I want to address it and see if I could uh, get to it. So the question had to do with, uh, with what exactly was Iman getting at in terms of when he was saying, and I thought it was a good sermon, but I think he was maybe not as clear in saying what was he trying to explain. And it's this idea of the rapture and how it's understood popularly versus what the scripture teaches. And so I thought what I'd do is just, without getting into all the stuff that he got into, but just give a brief overview of, <clears throat> of what we look at and what we understand the scripture to teach. The following, see, the thing is, if you come from a, a, a broad evangelical background, Baptist, uh, you know, uh, non-denominational, Bible church, that kind of thing, probably the whole rapture thing was very big in your orbit. If you come from any of the mainline churches, you know, Presbyterian, Methodist, Lutheran, Episcopalian, Anglican, that kind of thing, Roman Catholic, any of those, um, it's, it's not even on your radar. And so it just kind of depends on where you're coming from, where the confusion might lie. So in this part of the world, it seems most folks uh, who go to church tend to be on the Baptistic side of things. And so there would be probably uh, some confusion coming to a church like ours where we don't deal with the rapture. So let me just very briefly ask us to look again at that passage that Iman had us looking at, which was 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And um, if you remember, starting in verse 13, he is uh, encouraging the people um, as they deal with suffering, as they deal with all sorts of things. And amongst those is, what do we think of those brothers in Christ who have died? And he says in verse 13, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. So, of course, here the hope is that of the resurrection. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. 
So when you hear that at first blush, if you've not understood the Old Testament, which has been a significant failing of the broader evangelical community, just sets aside, you know, the Old Testament. Again, that's not everyone. I'm painting with a broad brushstroke, but it's what gave rise to dispensationalism. It's what gave rise to all this rapture stuff and whatever. If you're not paying attention to the Old Testament, then the way you read this is that we'll be, you know, here doing our stuff, and all of a sudden we'll hear trumpet blasts, you know, whatever that's going to be like, and Jesus is going to come descending down, and we will all see him. And, you know, then there's all sorts of questions. How will we all see him? How... If I'm here and somebody's in China, how will we see him? And, of course, the answer is he's God. He'll make it, you know, work or whatever. And we'll see him coming down, you know, on a cloud and so on with all the other rest of, you know, the believers with him. And then they'll come down, and then they will take up all the believers. And depending on what kind of evangelical you are in your dispensationalism, actually, I should say your premillennial views, dispensational premillennial views, then there's all sorts of questions of what happens next. But in general, the idea is that believers are taken up and, um, and changed and transformed and so on. That somehow we get, tra- there's questions, do we get transformed on the ground and we get our new bodies or do we start floating up to meet him in the air and then we, you know, change halfway up there. And that's why Iman was talking about flying like Superman because that's the general trend. Any of you got, ever heard this in church? Really? Yeah, no, a couple? Okay. I was going to say, yeah, if you've been in any kind of dispensational, premillennial, which is like every, every evangelical, broadly evangelical church, you probably would have heard something like that. So um, what we want to kind of just very briefly do here is just kind of take a look at generally how we understand that. What Iman was trying to point out to us was that this is language coming from the Old Testament, and particularly from what happened when God descended onto uh, Sinai. You've got to remember that the Exodus is not just another story in the Old Testament. The Exodus is the redemptive event par excellence in the Old Testament. It's the one that if you notice, you read the whole of the Old Testament, everybody looks back to it. The prophets look back to it. The Psalms look back to it. They sing about it and so on. This is the moment where God delivered his people. The rest, even though there are other deliverances happening, are just like us saying, we've been saved, but God delivered me from this, or God delivered me from that, or whatever, you know. They're smaller scale, and they're all about Israel trying to live out what it means to be a redeemed people. But that's the real focus, is that the exodus is where they were in the power of something greater than them, of which there would have been no natural way for them to ever have escaped, ever have gotten out from that slavery, and God, through the mighty working of his hand, you know, the, the, right, the might of his right hand, as it were, using that kind of Old Testament metaphorical language, delivered them and brought them up out of that and brought them to a place where they could prosper and where they could flourish. Now that they blew it is something else. But that's the picture of redemption in the Old Testament. It's huge, right? So it fills everything. Now, what happens in Sinai, if we remember our story, starting in chapter 19 of Exodus, the people are brought to Sinai, and now they are a redeemed people. These are not a people waiting to be saved. And we tend to think of Sinai as the giving of the Ten Commandments. There is that, but that's much, there's so much more to it. The giving of the Ten Commandments is part of God making his covenant with his people. And he's telling them, because you are my people, this is what it looks like for you to live. This is what redeemed people look like. And so he gives them the Ten Commandments. But in it, there's this whole idea of a covenant ceremony continues on. We read about it 
in chapter 24. So chapters 19 to 23 is, uh, is often called the Book of the Covenant. That was the law that they had at that time that was given to them. So these are the rules. These are the stipulations. This is how you are to live. The moral code part of that is what we get in the Ten Commandments, but there were other things about how they should live as a nation and so on. So all that is just part of this complex of events. But in that moment when God comes down to them, we have this language, you know, of his coming in smoke and fire on the mountain and tremblings and this loud blast of a trumpet and all this other stuff. And it was scary. And people could not approach the mountain because this is a holy God. They were a sinful people who had been redeemed but they were a holy God, and so things had to happen for them to be able to approach him. And God tells them, don't let anybody come to the mountain because they will die. The idea is, you know, again, we have a very familiar view in Christianity today of God. Like, we're just going to come up to him when we see him. Like when, we, uh, when John sees Jesus in Revelation 1, right? We kind of have this idea we're going to come up to God and say, yo, God, and slap him on the back with our Bible. And that's not at all the picture you see of John when he sees Jesus in Revelation 1, he falls down on his feet before him. This is the great and holy God, and that's who's come down to them. So all the, the, the language uh, of, of smoke and fire and rumblings, you know, ground literally moving and all that is meant to impress upon the people the grandeur and the holiness and otherness of God. The only one who can climb up is the mediator, that's Moses, and this is why it says in Deuteronomy 18 that later there will be another one like Moses who will be able to see God face to face and so on. Reference to Jesus. No other prophet, no other priest is like Moses until Christ. And then the book of Hebrews comes along, and Dave Boxerman did a great job last Sunday just giving us a brief overview, basically saying that the whole book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is better, better than, better than, better than the angels, better than Moses. But in that moment, he is the picture of the mediator, and he climbs up on the mountain, receives the Ten Commandments, comes out, and so on. And then he directs the people in making sacrifice, which we read about in chapter 24 of Exodus, and the people have to be sprinkled with the blood, and the altars have to be sprinkled with the blood, and after all that is done, only then can the people come up. Now, you can't put two million people up on the mountain, so the elders who represent the people go on the mountain. And if you look at the very, let's, let's take a look at the very end of Exodus 24. You can read that, you know, this afternoon, the whole chapter, just so you get a feel of how that all worked out. You can start in, you know, verse, in chapter 19 and just see how Israel arrives at Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments are given. And there's laws all the way through chapter 23. And then in chapter 24, the covenant is confirmed for them. Uh, let's take a look, I said at the end, but actually at the end of this story. Let's take a look at verse 11, or verse 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. That's not a throwaway line. They saw, they were in the presence of God. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. What it's basically saying, of course, to eat and drink in the presence of God is to have fellowship with God. The enmity that existed between a sinful people and a holy God has been removed because of the sacrifices, of course, pointing forward to this ultimate sacrifice of Christ. By the way, if you ever ask, how can God 
uh, if, if those sacrifices, as the book of Hebrews says, really never had any real weight to them, they didn't actually do anything, they were just pictures, how can God then allow sinful people in his midst? Because he knows that his son is going to die for them. Think of it like credit. Jesus' credit is really good. And God the Father knows that Jesus is going to die for these people. So, uh, but just setting that aside, it says that they ate and drank with him. They had fellowship with God. But it says this incredible line, God did not lay his hands on them. He didn't kill them, which is what normally would have happened if they had entered into his presence. It's an amazing thing. And it's what happens every Sunday when you come to the Lord's Supper. You do not get killed. In other words, Jesus inviting you to the table. And coming into the presence of Jesus should put every single one of us to death. He is the judge. But because he died, we don't die. It's an amazing passage to look at. Going back to 1 Thessalonians 4, that is what Paul is getting at. The language that he's talking about, the trumpet and the rumblings and, you know, the, um, the cloud and all that, is not these clouds but it is the Shekinah glory cloud. So what it's basically talking about again is that God is coming once again to meet his people. That's really all it's saying. I shouldn't say all it's saying. I mean, that's like the biggest thing of all. Yeah, did you, any of you guys see uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind? I mean, I remember watching that when it first came out. And even if you watched it uh, later, this sense and awe and wonder when the alien craft, I won't give it away, but um, it's obviously about meeting with aliens. When this benevolent alien, you know, craft, it's not, it's not Independence Day, it's not, you know, about invasions or Mars attacks. Uh, this is like the liberal's fantasy of, you know, higher intelligence. Um, say again? Yes. Dee, 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 dee. Hello, right? H-E-L-L-O. Right, remember that? So uh, they have all that. But that, that moment of wonder that Steven Spielberg did such a good job of recreating this idea when they're finally there. I mean, in the smallest way of an analogy, that's the idea that you're getting the picture of. This is God who's finally making his presence known publicly. And he's going to come down in the cloud. And so that's all the imagery. You can see that same imagery if you turn to Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees God on his throne. All the same imagery of the cloud of the, the noise, the rumblings, the whole nine yards is there. And then John, the apostle John, tells us in his gospel that it was, that whom Isaiah saw on that throne was Jesus. So the idea here is that of Jesus returning. And, um, but not returning like, you know, coming down in that, the way we pictured. But his appearance will be that of God come to earth. And, um, uh, the only other thing then to say here on First Thessalonians uh, 4 is the line that often throws people. Let me, let me get back to it. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And I think Iman actually did a pretty good job explaining that. I think the question that I got comes from the fact that he never set up the, the question as well as he could have. So even though you're giving a great answer, you're still maybe wondering, what's the question? So the question was trying to address this general, you know, broad evangelical view of the rapture. But in the air, as he pointed out, um, 
almost every commentary that I can turn to will explain it in the actual Greek language there. It simply means coming outside into the open air. Uh, that it's not going to be something in secret. It's going to be something out here. Everybody could, could see it. But it does not mean, you know, the, the, again, his Superman thing. So to just finish up with that, then, um, generally, and then Iman was absolutely correct in highlighting that the emphasis in Scripture is never what we now call the intermediate state. But you hear, and so I'm going to shift gears here a little bit. We hear this all the time that the hope of the Christian is when he dies and he goes to heaven. And that's not the hope of the Christian. That's virtually never discussed in Scripture. What's the hope of the Christian? The, the resurrection. So what happens, you know, here's you and me and all of us, and there's going to come a day in which we're not going to be here. We're going to die. And our bodies will be laid to rest. That's his arms folded on his chest, right? But his soul, his soul will be in heaven. And we call that the intermediate state, and it's not a natural state for human beings. And Imad was hitting on some things that I, uh, I didn't get it in this question, but I've had it asked in the past because you've heard me talk about it. And he was talking about his dad. His dad can't hear him. Remember, he was talking about, you know, my dad can't see me here. But you hear people saying that all the time. You know, my Aunt Petunia is looking down on me. Aunt Petunia is not looking down at you because guess what Aunt Petunia does not have? Eyes and ears. Guess where her eyes and ears are? They're down here. And they're rotting away. Now, we don't like to think that, you know, because we're supposed to go out there and tell people it's okay, and they're up there, and they're rejoicing, and they're dancing in their new body. How many times have you heard stuff like that from a pastor at a funeral? There's no new body. There will be a a, a body, but which body is it? The same one. It's going to be resurrected. Now, oh, what happens if it gets vaporized? What if it's one of those bodies in 9-11 that got crushed by the Twin Towers? What if, you know... God created all things out of nothing. I think he can handle it. So he will raise that body. It will be your body, just like the resurrected body of Jesus was so different that at first they didn't recognize him, but then they looked at him and said, oh, yeah, it's you, right? It's like, you know, somebody who you see them in a movie, right, and they've been out in the desert and they're all banged up and they're really, their skin is all leathery and, all, and then they take a shower and a bath and they get to civilization and all that and they look different. Not radically different, but they look different. And it's, again, these are just analogies to give you the idea. But this is an important point because it really highlights the alien nature of death. And I say alien as in it was never part, meant to be part of the creation. Death is the most unnatural thing. You've heard me say that before. So the fact that our souls will be separated. Now, some people have asked me, what does that mean? What does it look like? You need your brain to process. See, our, our, the, the real me is not my soul. The real me is my body and soul. Because that's what God created to be you and to be me. This is an unnatural sort of thing. You can't even think without your brain. Your brain and the rest of your body is part of how you're made in the image of God, right? God, for example, you've heard me say this in the past. God is creative, right? He created all things. They're all beautiful. We've got platypuses and we've got, you know, stars and all sorts of creative kind of things that we never would have thought of. God is creative, we're creative as we reflect them because we're made in his image. But whereas God can simply will platypuses out of thin air, you and I, when we're creative, we have to manipulate p- 
pre-existing matter, and we need to be able to see it, and we need to be able to touch it, and we need to be able to move it, right? So we're going to see in a few moments, right? We're going to have Matt and Dennis are going to grab their trumpets and trombones. They're going to be creative, but they have to hold those instruments, and they need breath, and they need their mouths and all that other stuff. Some of you will go, and you'll do some writing, and you'll need your eyes, and you'll need your hands to do your writing, and you know, all sorts of creative activity. You need your bodies to do that, and that includes your brain. You can't even think thoughts without it. This idea that we're going to be disembodied spirits that can still think, it's not there. So I've been asked, then, what will it be like? Well, I haven't been there, but the best analogy, I think, uh, I think comes from Sinclair Ferguson. Some of you will recognize that name. And Dr. Ferguson puts it this way. He says it's like a baby in the womb who technically, yes, I know they have ears and eyes and all that. And they can, but in one sense, they're sort of in a sensory deprivation chamber, right? They're like Michael Jackson and his little... Um, floating box. Some of you may not know what I'm talking about, but some of you may. Um, he used to put himself in a sensory deprivation thing where there would be no, no stimuli of any kind. So it's something like that where a child in the womb is not hearing, is not seeing, and so on, but feels warm and feels protected and, you know, that kind of thing. Feels secure. That's what this state is going to be like. So... Um, on that day in which the Lord returns, your soul will be reunited to your body and you know, it'll be you again, except it'll be super you, <laughs> right? Uh, that kind of thing. Anyway, so this is the hope that we have as believers, and that's what it talks about. So just wanted to give you that brief overview. Yeah, same thing then when you have Jesus at the transfiguration, right, with Moses and Elijah. So what's the question there? So let me take a step back, and if you look at that, so it's 1 Samuel chapter 28. The, uh, the medium, the witch, as it were, of Endor, uh, you know, is, is doing what, uh, what Saul commands her to do, which is to speak to the dead. Now, you may not know this. Uh, I spent the early years of my ministry in occult ministry, reaching, you know, ministering to people who uh, were involved in occult matters. And... Um, there are people who talk to the dead, but they are not really talking to the dead. They are talking to demons, yes. I mean, a lot of it's just hoaxes and, and make-believe. But that which is real is talking to demonic entities who pretend to be those things because anything that gets you to not believe in this model, gets you away from the biblical model, is a success for Satan, right? So uh, what's really interesting is when, the, when, when Samuel uh, actually appears, she freaks out because she knows it's not one of her tricks. She knows it's not one of those demons that she talks to. She really is meeting the real one. So that just goes to show you that this does not happen normally. I suspect that either you have a vision, a, 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 an appearance of a body, right, that you might have with Elijah and Moses as well, or, yes, a temporary restoration of their bodies, would be the simplest way to answer it. It goes along the same lines of the theophanies, like when uh, Abraham meets with God, and that God is Jesus in his pre-incarnate form. Or we might say the second person of the Trinity, not the son of Mary, because the son of Mary has not been born. But when that body shows up and walks with Abraham to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they look you know, over the plain and see that, there is a body there. And so it's, a, a, you know, pre, it's called a pre-incarnation. Uh, manifestation of the second person of the Trinity, uh, I would imagine it's something like that. Um, but the fact that you're not supposed to do it 
is because you're dealing with demons. But yeah, the, the witch of Endor was, in fact, when Saul comes to her, she's like, I'm not supposed to do this. And he's like, I'm the king. I'm telling you to do it. Uh, she knew that she was, I mean, the king is supposed to be, you know, kind of like the president, the chief executive officer who enforces the laws. And here he is, break, oh, nothing's changed. Uh, here he is breaking the law and actually asking her to purposely do it. That's why she doesn't want to do it at first. But yeah, but let me get back to you, Loretta, on that and give you the exact places to, to find. All right, I think we're pretty much out of time. Any questions about just this general idea of the intermediate state, the resurrection, that there is no rapture. When Jesus returns, this will be it. The judgment day, we go straight to it. Uh, Timothy? We will, we will enjoy his presence in some way. And um, again, I think Sinclair does a good job in giving us that analogy that you will have that warmth, that security, that, you know, uh, that safety, you know, that, that feeling of his presence. Um, but not, you know, it won't be like I'll be talking to you and all this other kind of stuff. Oh, you're talking about Luke 16. I think that's, I think that's parabolic. And I, the reason I say that is because everywhere else in Scripture, you don't get a picture of, of being able to, to communicate and interact. And he's trying to make a point. And his point in that parable was very simple. Uh, this is Luke 16, right? And there's this parable of this, uh, this, this man who had been cruel and, and, and selfish in life. And when he dies, he goes to hell. And he's able to see heaven. And I think it's just a parabolic way of saying he, he regrets what he did. He regret, And so he's calling on Abraham and saying, Abraham, send. Now, you know, Abraham doesn't have any power to do any of that. So it's just all kind of just setting up this image. Abraham, send somebody to go talk to my brothers and tell my brothers, uh, warn them, warn them that if they continue living like I did, they're going to end up here as well. And Abraham's short answer, there's a little bit more to it, is, you know, no. And, and Jesus ends the parable by saying that even if somebody came back from the dead, they would not believe because of the hardness of their heart. And of course, Jesus does come back from the dead. But what he says is the law and the prophets is sufficient. That's the key line there. The law and the prophets, the New Testament hadn't been written yet, so he's talking about the Bible. He's saying, this is enough. This is the testimony you have. And if you don't believe this, literally somebody will come back from the dead and you won't believe it. That's exactly what happened. And it does happen. It continues to happen even today. So that's the main point of the parable, but I'm pretty sure that is parabolic and not, not a literal, um, because then it, it, it would contradict what we read, and we really have to quit right here. It would contradict what we read in Revelation where it talks about the spirits that are under the altar crying out for, the, for Jesus to return. So are they living an idyllic life with Abraham in paradise? With bodies, mind you, bodies. Or are they um, uh, stuck under an altar crying out? All parabolic to bring out, emphasize something. Okay, guys, I know there was, I think I may have seen another hand, but we're going to have to hold it because we're already way past our time. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll get ready for worship. Father, one thing we are absolutely certain of is that your son, Jesus Christ, will return. There will be uh, a remaking of all things and everything which we have messed up and not just the world out there, but that we contribute in our selfishness and our pettiness and our um, uh, anger and in our lusts. All that will be swept away. All the suffering that is a consequence of our behavior will be swept away and we will be made new. Until then, Father, we have complete another confidence that this, which is supposed to be completely unnatural death, even that is redeemed 
and becomes something positive for the believer. We thank you, Father, for that. We thank you for the hope of the resurrection, the surety of it, and we pray that we would uh, be encouraged, as Paul says at the end of First Thessalonians 4, knowing that there is real hope. And we pray this things, these things, Father, in the name of Jesus, because he alone makes them all possible. Amen.